Well, hello, all you awesome Arctic foxes out there. Welcome back to another episode of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. My name's Casey, and I haven't done the intro in a long time. You did a great job. Wonderful. (laughs) I forgot that I had to do that for a second. So I'm Casey, one of your hosts, and that is Sarah. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of A Little Greener. Hey, Sarah, how's your week going? It's good. I can't, everything is so mixed up in my brain because, you know, my work week changes and all all the things. So I'm like, what, what has happened since the last time we recorded? I don't even know. I think it's been fine. Yeah. I don't, what is time? Uh, So I think it's been fine. I don't know that I have anything in particular to report. How was your week? Uh, My week was good. My fiance's brother and sister-in-law came and visited, um, which is exciting because his brother is uh, deploying next year for almost the whole year. So it was good. We got to see each other. They came from Minnesota um, where it is chillier back in Indiana, where Mm -hmm. we just left you and I, they just had their first snow. They did have their first snow. Yeah. (laughs) We both avoided that. So, hey, Hoosier listeners, it what's was, up? <laughs> it was 75 degrees here today. That's great. I don't have anything as exciting as your weekly news, but I do have nature-related news. Tell I got me. to save a turtle this week, <gasps> sort of. Tell me more. There was a soft-shelled turtle. I don't know if it was just a Florida soft-shelled turtle, like that's the species, or if it was a different type of soft-shell turtle that lives here in Florida. But uh, but there's a soft-shell turtle in the middle of the road where I work. And so we stopped and I got to move it off to the side of the road. And it was, I mean, it was a pretty sizable, I think, like yeah. over a foot long. And, you know, one of those to that you like get from behind <laughs> safety first to yes. move it. But, uh, but it was fun. I was not expecting to see one in the middle of the road like that, especially just where it was. I hope it found its way back to water, but, um, but it was fun. Get yeah, some Florida uh, nature. Look up soft shell turtles. If you are like, what isn't the concept that <laughs> it is all hard shell turtles out there? Um, they're really interesting because their shells are kind of more leathery mm-hmm. and they are generally a truly aquatic species. So um, Andrew's constantly trying to catch them when we go kayaking and they are way too fast. So you have successfully touched one in the wild. He has not, I think. So. Ah, yes. <laughs> I should have taken a picture. Darn it. Yes. Yeah. Next time. If you guys come across any wildlife that you're like, oh, this is a cool bird and none of my friends will appreciate this. Or I was excited to see this, like tag us in it, share it with us and just pretend like you're doing a weekly challenge or something and we'll uh, we'll find you. you. Yes. We'll, we'll get excited with you. We had lots of people looking for migratory birds this week and, and saw some. So thank you guys for commenting on that post. And it sounds like there's some good bird watching going on out there. Um, our last week's homework was to basically look at uh, the map of migratory birds, look at some options for protecting migratory birds uh, in your area. Sarah, did you do any of that? I hard failed this week. Hard failed. (laughs) In my weekly challenge, I straight up failed. I think the day after we recorded, I started to look things up. And like I said, I, I don't know what time is anymore. So I don't know what happened, but I did not successfully find the information that I was looking for. And then I straight, I sold my house this week. Things were yeah, happening. That, it was see, that's something happening. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's just a lot going on. Didn't do it. Will do it though. That's the nice thing. If you fail, quote unquote, fail a challenge, that's okay. That we're not grading you. There's no, nope. uh, you, you can do it again. You can do it another week. You can do it anytime. We're just trying to put ideas out there for folks to work on and help encourage each other along to do it together. So I did not. Did you do any of this, Casey? I mean, you probably did some of it in your preparation for the episode as well. Yes, I did some in the preparation. So I looked at like the migration map to look at the airflow, um, the like wind direction in my area through, I believe it's uh, flap.org. And what I found myself doing this week is being hyper aware of the amount of glass in our area. Mm. So we did a lot of sightseeing because David and Ariana were in town. And as we're driving through different areas, I'm like, huh, the Valley Forge National Park 
center is all glass on the one side or going to the Philadelphia zoo, their primate house has bird safe glass. That's super cool. And so just becoming really aware of how much one of those big threats to birds are all around us was interesting. Yeah. Which is great to do. I did have one thing that I just remembered that I didn't go looking for this. It just so happened to pop up over the past week in one of the birding groups that I'm in on Facebook. Somebody posted, I don't remember where they were, what building they were visiting, but they had mentioned that they would repeatedly see dead birds by this building. And they had said something to the person working the front desk at the the building. And their comment was just like, oh yeah, it happens all the time. And they posted that in this Facebook group to ask, hey, how do I handle this? What do I do about this? And it was cool to see the responses from some people talking about the things that we talked about last week in terms of how to bird proof your glass and things like that and giving suggestions for how this person might bring that up at that particular building. So I thought that was really nice and kind of right along the lines of what you were talking about as far as, you know, you mentioned keeping an eye out for new projects and looking for, you know, ways that we can be bird friendly with our, our, our new buildings. But I thought that was cool that this person came to this group to look for help about how to help make this current building safer for birds. So I thought that was fun and timely. Yeah. Timely. There's a community out there that, you know, you can go into for some of that moral support. Uh, it's definitely uh, something that can be cheaper to do on the front end for buildings mm-hmm. because making bird safe glass a part of the initial design, but it's also possible to do basically at any stage. You can add on those decals and things like that. So, and that's just one of the many things that we talked about in our last episode. So if you want to learn more about migratory birds, listen to migratory birds, part one, and yeah. then listen to two. <laughs> yes. And this week we're actually going to keep kind of continuing that thought uh, from migratory birds, we're going to move on to what what else can animals do to survive the winter? So we're going to be talking about winter weather here. We mentioned we had the first snow back in Indiana, where Casey and I both recently moved from. So we're going to talk about what animals do in the winter. And to kick that off, Casey, I want to ask about your winter experiences. What is the most extreme or severe winter experience that you have had? I'm sure my my parents, I'm going to ask them this next time I see them and they're going to be like, oh, don't you remember this one that was way worse than what you're Mm. coming up with right now? But the one that really stands out to me is we were off for at least a week. It may have been two weeks from school at one point because we were just snowed. We had a huge blizzard. I believe it was, it might've been like one of those combo, like we were already off for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Mm, And then we were out for an additional like week and a half, but it snowed. I want to say like four feet. Um, wow. Which is a lot for Pennsylvania. Like I'm sure our Alaskan listeners are like, whatever, (laughs) but, uh, but for Pennsylvania, especially where you don't necessarily have the infrastructure, that's like, everyone is prepared for snow. Like we're not, I don't know, panicky, but, uh, we, it definitely, it stalled everything. We were lucky not to lose power for an extended period of time, but it, it definitely just like my mom couldn't go to work and, uh, and we were stuck in the house for a while. We really couldn't go do anything except play in the snow. Mm -hmm. So I lived right uh, down the block from our high school and there was like the massive schoolyard there. And two of my friends also lived like one block in one direction, one block in another direction. And we like built snow forts and, and, uh, snowmen. And it was snowing like continuously through this whole time. And I remember my sister and I trying to get back from playing like hard for a long time. And there was like a point where we're like trudging through like the four feet of snow. And we're kind of like that weird moment where you're like, why do people with hypothermia just like take off their clothes or whatever? And we were just like, maybe we just give up. If we just rest, it'll be better. And then that's when I realized I was like, wait, it's still snowing. If we rest, we won't get home ever. <laughs> so, uh, so we survived it. We were, we were okay. But, uh, when winter's no joke, we're lucky to have a house, right? We've got shelter, but for real, we do. Yeah. What about you, Sarah? So yeah, I remember, so I grew up in Northern Indiana, um, not too far off from Lake Michigan. So lake effect snow was fairly common. So I remember lots of big snowfalls. We did not get 
snow days too often because of that, because we do have the infrastructure. Yeah. So, I mean, there were definitely lots of times though, where I was like, I don't think school buses should be running (laughs) in this right now. But, uh, but yeah, so I had lots of that where we would have, you know, over a foot of snow, at least that, that I remember it, you know, digging tunnels, like literally yes. digging tunnels in the snow in my friend's backyard and, you know, coming out with your hair all frozen. I remember trying to drop off my friends after school and like getting my speedometer up to like 85 miles an hour just to try to plow through the just snow. The, the slush the, shooting yeah, out like the back you're tire. You're literally yeah. not moving, but your odometer is up there just to try to get going in the snow. So I had so, a lot of snowy experiences growing up, but one of my favorites, and I just, I remember it because it was more recently, I, although I guess this was seven, eight years ago now, I was living in Florida at the time and I had gone to visit my family back home and the polar vortex was, do you remember that? And I I want to say wind chills were like negative 30 to negative 40 while I was there. And uh, it was like, you know, you weren't supposed to go outside for more than five minutes at a time. So I remember just being the terrible daughter that I am I was staying with my mom so she would go outside to like shovel the driveway for a few minutes and I had seen this thing on the internet where if you blew bubbles it was it was so cold if you blow bubbles they'll freeze immediately and then you can shatter them so my mom was shoveling snow I was blowing <laughs> driveway because I'm such a good child um but it was yeah it was crazy it was crazy how cold it was and I have my you know Florida coat that's not really a coat right. and, you know just trying to layer up as much as possible and just going out for a couple a couple minutes at a time because yeah as you say it is no joke and I'm very thankful for shelters and heaters and winter clothes and all of the things that we have that animals may not have. And so this week, we're going to be talking about some of the strategies that animals will use to survive that winter weather. So stick around. Welcome back, everyone. We are talking about wildlife in winter. So the past couple of weeks, we talked about migratory birds, and obviously they are getting out of Dodge. They're finding other places to shelter over the winter. But today we're just going to be talking about animals in general. What are the ways they survive? I'm going to focus a little more on backyard wildlife, recognizing that this is going to vary completely depending on where you're listening from, but I'm not thinking so much about say Arctic animals. We're not so much talking about things like our polar bears or our walruses. When I picture a walrus, I'm like, yes, it makes sense. (laughs) It makes sense to me that you can survive in that cold habitat. They have cool adaptations. We can talk about that some other time. Some of it overlaps as well, but we're going to be focusing more about those animals that you might be more likely to see around you. What happens to them? Where do they go uh, in the winter months? So Casey, there are really just, I mean, we could talk about this for a while, but there are really just a few basic options that all animals are going to have to deal with the winter. So can you just give us a quick rundown of what animals can do in the winter? Yeah. So we covered this last week, get the heck out of Dodge, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's cold. I'm migrating out of here. So on mass species moving their, their butts to the warmer weather. Another one would be hunker down. So like stay in a shelter or even decrease activity to the point of hibernation. And then there's also the option of just staying active. So some of those species don't get to just shut down kind of like a, you might imagine a bear would or some insects in different stages might, um, they stay active and you'll see their footprints around in the snow. Mm-hmm. And that's basically it, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the last option that we could mention is that not everybody is going to make it through the winter. So some animals will die. I'm thinking about insects here in particular, 
this is not true across the board. There's lots of different things that insects can do. A lot of times adult insects will die in the winter time, but they will have, they will be overwintering in other life stages. So we'll talk about that as we go along too. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I was like, yeah, some die. Cause I've done lots of research for animals where it's like, oh yeah, rattlesnakes hibernate over the winter time, but like 10% of their population Mm -hmm. over the winter might die. But it's interesting, right. That there are animals that sort of as a built-in part of their life cycle, winter is the time we die (laughs) rather than like, this is just a a fact that some of us aren't going to survive our means of getting through the winter. Yeah. And that is true too, but although, well, yeah, what you just said as well. Some, yeah, you are just going to lose a portion of the the population. It's tough. Winter is hard. So we're just going to kind of go through these and talk about a few species as we go along. Migration will go through super quickly because we did spend the past couple of weeks on it. This is a great option for animals that have the ability to move quickly to another area, right? Migration is not going to be feasible for every species. Birds, obviously, they can fly, they can travel maybe a little more quickly, more easily. So they're the ones that we think of. There are some other species that we might call backyard wildlife that migrate as well. Casey, do you know of any other backyard wildlife that migrate? An animal that we have mentioned many times on this podcast, but have not done a full episode on are monarch butterflies. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would assume there's more species of insects that also migrate, but that's a big one. And I think that that's a, a good point to mention, like things that can fly or megafauna, like things that are large enough to be able to move considerable distances over time. And I guess technically things like fish could like swim if they've got a a way to do that. And so the other thing that flies other than birds and insects would be bats. Bats. They migrate, right? Yeah, they do. Again, some, not all of them have done a full episode on bats. So feel free to go back and listen to our bat episode. If you're interested, we could do multiple more episodes on bats. I love them. And this is one that, you know, this was backyard wildlife for me. That was one of my favorite things in the summertime was watching my bats fly around and they'll do different things. What's interesting to me is some bats will migrate to warmer climates. Some species of bats will migrate in order to hibernate, which we'll talk about next. So they will actually do a couple of different things, but they will migrate to caves that are structured appropriately to hold the right temperature for them to hibernate, which is fascinating to me. Apparently some caves are like warm air traps. Other caves can be cold air traps. And so I was reading from one of my favorite conservation organizations, Bat Bat Conservation International, it's batcon.org, that nearly all gray bats from Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia will migrate to hibernate each winter in only four caves. Okay. That's gotta be a lot of bats, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. And that's another, you know, they'll, they can huddle together, you know, they roost tightly together. Yeah. Side note, when you said BatCon for bat conservation, because that's their their uh, website, I just imagined a Comic Con. But like for nerds who like bats, and like everyone's dressed up as different types of bats. This needs to be a thing. <laughs> bat I'm conservation down. international people, are you listening? We need bat a BatCon. Con. Yes. Uh, oh, I will be there. We'll have to go back and listen to our bat episode and pick uh, our favorite species. Pick our favorite bats. Yes. <laughs> Good call. Okay, Love cool. It. <laughs> All right, moving on. So, so migration, it's more than just for the birds. Other species will do it as well. Yeah, Casey, you mentioned monarch butterflies. Other insects will do it. I think I was reading about some dragonflies that will do it. Uh, agricultural or insects that are known to be crop pests will migrate often as well. Um I don't want to like, but like, would a locust be like a something that's a flying insect that uh, that would be counting? Probably. I yeah. didn't read, yeah, specifically like which pest insects they were talking about. But and then you mentioned too, there are lots of other species that we think of, not so much backyard wildlife, but that are going to be the more megafauna that migrate as well. You think of like reindeer or caribou, whatever you want to call them. Species of whales will migrate, sea turtles migrate, things like that. But it's not going to be feasible for 
every species. These other species, though, that aren't able to migrate are still facing those same challenges of reduced resources, right? So we talked about it's not really the cold that these migrators are escaping. They are looking for somewhere that they are going to have enough resources to survive the winter. So what about all of these other species that are losing their resources, they're losing their, their food sources and all of that, but aren't able to get out? What's their option? So what they're going to do is some variation of hunkering down, I think maybe Casey is what you said earlier. So we'll think of this as, you know, hibernation is the term that most people are probably familiar with, but there are a few different terms or different techniques that are all pretty similar. So we'll talk about hibernation. There's something called a torpor, brumation, or diapause. These are all different words and slightly different strategies, but really the same idea as ways that animals can quote unquote sleep through it basically reducing their need for resources over the winter time so we'll kind of talk through this a little bit casey when the average person on the street hears the word hibernation what animal do you think comes to mind it's gotta be bears it's gotta be the bears right i feel like that's what we learn about as kids bears hibernate there's and really, I don't know that there's another animal that we're like, yeah, like that you, your brain would automatically go to. And, and even though these terms are different, I will say that like, sometimes I have seen other educators get bogged down in like trying to make sure that people they're trying to talk to about the environment understand the differences. Mm -hmm. I think that like, and, and obviously scientists have put a lot of work to like determine what each of these are, but I do think like hibernation is a good catch-all term for a lot of these behaviors because the idea that's in your brain is close enough to reality that I don't know that it's worth learning the word brumation for the average person. I agree. And I do think that they are all very similar techniques is the wrong word. My brain's not functioning, (laughs) but they are all similar states. Strategies. They're all similar strategies. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's, what's important. And what I will say is from my reading on this, I don't necessarily think that scientists are all agreed on all of the definitions of these things per se either. So that's sure. why I've grouped them all together and we'll talk through a little bit because the, the point of all of this is that yes, bears is probably the, the animal that we think about when we think about hibernation, but you will find people that say bears do not hibernate. Bears will actually go into a state of torpor. However, I've also heard the terms super hibernators, I think somebody Mm -hmm. called them. Um, And then I think there was one other sort of phrase that I came across with respect to bears. So I think that there is still some debate even within the scientific community of exactly what it is that determines hibernation versus torpor. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this. Basically, all of these things involve decreased metabolic rate. So let's talk about that for a minute. We are endothermic creatures, right? These bears are endothermic. Mammals, birds, all endothermic animals. Yeah, warm-blooded. Basically, this means that we have an internally regulated body temperature, right? 98.6-ish is what our body temperature is supposed to be. And we actually use the energy that we get from eating food to maintain that body temperature. So a lot of our resources go to maintaining this body temperature. So in the winter time, go ahead, Casey, did you want to, I was going to say, this is the reason that like you and I need to eat several meals a day, but Mm -hmm. a turtle doesn't because we spend so much of our energy just generating our own heat (laughs) Yeah, and other animals don't always have to do that. So our reptiles and amphibians, they are ectothermic aka cold-blooded, they do not have that internally regulated body temperature. Their body temperature is always controlled by their external environment. Uh, They can do things behaviorally to, to adjust their body temperature as well. But yeah, so they don't have that need to eat as much as we do to maintain that body temperature. All of this is important because again, here we are in the winter time where those resources are depleted 
So what do we do? So these animals are going to drop their metabolic rate. They're going to drop their body temperature significantly so they can drop that metabolic rate uh, because they don't need to keep their, their energy up. So similar to how we talked about how migrating birds are going to bulk up prior to migration, animals that do this hibernation, torpor, whatever, they are also going to bulk up they're going to um, increase their fat reserves prior to coming into the winter. And then they are going to go into this decreased metabolic state and they're going to drop their body temperature. They're going to, their heart rate's going to drop, their breathing's going to drop, and they're going to live off of those energy reserves through the winter. It's actually fascinating. And researchers are looking at this to figure out you know, how we might be able to use it in human medicine, how we might be able to use it even for things like preserving organs for transplants, all kinds mm -hmm. of stuff where this might have uh, an application for us. So just to give you some examples, metabolic rate might be decreased depending on the species to as much as 2% of their normal metabolic rate, which I didn't realize just how much uh, it, it could drop. And then, like we were saying, there is some debate here. So with respect to the bear issue, the debate has to do with basically temperature and duration are seem, seems to be the two things that it comes down to. Bears don't drop their body temperature as significantly, but they can stay in this sort of depressed state for a significant length of time where torpor oftentimes is considered to be shorter. So different people refer to it as different things. I don't care so much. I think the mechanisms are, are similar enough. Yeah. And I think it's worth um, pointing out that bears. So first of all, bears can get up in the middle of hibernation, mm -hmm. like contrary to what your image might be yes. where they sleep through the whole winter, they can get up. And the degree to which bears hibernate greatly depends upon the resources, the geography and the weather. So bears in like Northern Alaska, I'm thinking, um, brown bears, brown bears in Northern Alaska might have to quote hibernate for six to eight months sometimes, yeah. depending on the year, crazy amount of time. That's more than half the year. That's insane. Um, but bears that live in the Southern part of the state, if they're having a mild winter, will go through a walking hibernation where basically their food needs have degree decrease to a point where they don't really need to eat very much at all, but the sort of trade-off has been made. It's not so cold that it makes more sense for me to be not using energy at all. Um, and it is warm enough that there might be something worth my while to eat, but they're still going through that same yearly change. And we see the same thing in bears in human care as well. Yeah. And other animals that are considered to be true hibernators across the board, it is important to note that they also will get up and move around too. So even though there seems to be debate about this amongst bears, other hibernating animals do also get up and move around occasionally and will get up and use the bathroom occasionally and things like that too. But they just spend significant periods of time in this decreased metabolic rate. So it is, it is fascinating to me. Again, just a couple other examples to really illustrate what's going on here. We talked about bats as being one of the species that is some species of bats will, will be hibernators. Bats can have a heart rate of around 400 beats per minute when they're awake. Their heart rate could drop to as little as 25 beats per minute when they're in hibernation. And there, I talked about those caves, those they'll look for caves that are at a specific temperature and their body temperature is going to be within a few tenths of a degree of the temperature of the cave that they're in. Chipmunks are another backyard animal that you might see. Chipmunks are hibernators as well. They, their heart rate can decrease from about 350 beats per minute to about four what? beats per minute. <laughs> It's just unbelievable. Like my brain cannot comprehend, even though I'm sitting here saying all of these things, decreased metabolic rate, decreased energy needs. How do you survive on four beats per minute? It's amazing to me. When you're that small too. Like yeah. it's, it's not like a whale where they have really yeah. 
low blood flow. Like the, the blood is just the volume is so much bigger. They're tiny little animals. Yeah. It's incredible. And then groundhogs are another one, you know, we think about groundhog day and you know, how many more weeks of winter we're going to have or whatever, but yeah, groundhogs are, are hibernators as well. Their body get temperature or their, excuse me, their heartbeat can drop from about 80 beats per minute to about four or five and their body temperature normally similar to ours can drop to as low as 38 degrees Fahrenheit. So yeah, hibernators are pretty impressive. A couple of other backyard animals that you might see uh, kind of hunkering down. Um, these animals are not considered to be true hibernators, but will be in this more torpor state. Again, very similar strategy to where you are decreasing um, those needs, but you'll probably see them up and about a little more often, especially if the temperature gets a little bit warmer, you might see them up and moving around still. So raccoons are going to do this. So they may be spending part of their time in that decreased metabolic state, but you may also see them up and moving around. And then interestingly, chickadees. So we talked about the past couple of weeks, how not all birds are going to migrate. Some birds are going to be sticking around and chickadees are one that I came across a few times as being, um, they have other strategies that we'll talk about as we go along, but they will go into this sort of controlled hypothermia or sort of controlled torpor regularly at night. So during the day, you're going to see them up and moving around, but at night they are going to, because they can't be up and eating at night, they are going to rest and they are going to drop that metabolic rate and drop their temperature, which is also fascinating to me that they kind of do this at a cyclical rate, uh, daytime versus nighttime. Yeah. That's extreme. Yeah. Pretty interesting. And then the the other word that we kind of threw out there in this category is brumation. Casey, can you, I, I just throw all the reptile and amphibian questions at you. <laughs> can you, can you take us real quick through brumation? I, in general, yes. Um, basically because these are animals, reptiles, and amphibians, you cannot control their body temperature. Really, they are literally trying to avoid freezing solid in most cases, mm -hmm. um, in the snow, um, and, and those really cold freezing temperatures. So typically what they do for some aquatic turtles, for example, they're going to spend their whole winter time underwater, like in the banks of a pond or a river for animals like Eastern box turtles, they're going to try and burrow down, um, under the first couple layers of, uh, dirt and mulch and leaf litter to help protect themselves. And then, uh, timber rattlesnakes, for example, will actually go to communal burrows. Yeah. So they will, will find areas under rocks, which is basically just protected enough from the cold that they don't freeze and die. And they also will build up fat stores over the, the fall time to try and, and bulk up their body a little bit. Um, but I was talking about earlier, like a certain percentage of the population has the chance to die off. So we talked about migratory birds, like 35% of the ones that stick around here just die over the winter time, which seems improbable. And every winter, like 10% of certain rattlesnake species will die off just because it is too brutal. Like the brumation yeah. ended up lasting too long. The weather didn't turn soon enough for them to be able to emerge from their burrows or emerge from their safe spots. But I, I know we're going to talk about this in a second. Eastern box turtles and wood frogs both have the ability. I said, we're avoiding freezing solid, mm -hmm. but both of those animals have the ability to have at least parts of their body freeze solid. Yeah. What, what happens like two thirds of a wood frog can freeze wood frogs solid. are insane. Yeah. They're, they're the, the only... ones you'll find most about. Yes. Um, and they're the only species of frog I think that you can find like in Alaska because they can survive that sort of extreme temperature, but they found that out about Eastern box turtles as well, that they can freeze. I think it's up to 40% of their body. Um, and what happens to you and I, the reason we can't do that is because when water gets into our cells, um, the, and then freezes, the, the ice expands and bursts our cell walls. <laughs> you would, yeah, you would have like ice crystals, like yes. destroying your organs. <laughs> right. So not an option for human beings at the current moment, but there are animals who have to survive those extreme habitats that have the, the ability. Do you want to tell us a little bit about things like wood frogs? 
Yeah, so it's fascinating. I I found a video that hopefully we'll remember to share if folks are are interested. But yeah, basically, so to backtrack just a little bit, the the goal here is to avoid freezing to death for these animals, for mm-hmm. these reptiles and amphibians that are going into brumation again. They're body temperatures are going to be low because it's cold. So their body temperatures are going to be dropping. Their metabolic rate's going to be really slow anyway, because it's, it's cold, right? So it's a little different from the hibernators that we talked about that are lowering that, that body temperature point. Uh, so they need to just avoid freezing to death. So you right. have some species that are going to do that physically, right? In the same way that we would go take shelter in our homes, they're going to have those burrows. They're going to have those dens. Or they can do this sort of physiologically or chemically or however you want to look at it. And that's what the wood frogs do. You'll you'll read that they basically produce antifreeze. It's a lot of sugars, basically. So they are going to allow sugars to build up into their bodies to... Um, and it has to do with the water, basically like drawing the water out of their cells to avoid that freezing and that ice crystal formation. Uh, and they, and they do that by this buildup of sugars and urea that they're going to store in their bodies. And again, they'll do that to keep enough of their body from freezing solid to survive their heart and their lungs can virtually, they stop working. They stop beating. I can't, I can't wrap my brain around. There's, I'm sure more research that needs to be done about like how long you can, they can go without their heart beating or how long they can go with freezing. And I'm sure different individuals and their fitness levels would, Mm -hmm. would change that. I think actually garter snakes also have the ability to partially freeze. Yes, there are actually, I think many species that do, but wood frogs are the ones that I think have been the most, yeah, they they are maybe the most extreme. I'm not even sure about that. Um, but I think they've been studied. They've been looked at the most. So you're going to find a lot about them. But yeah, and not just uh, reptiles and amphibians as well. I see some insects can do this as well. That oh, that makes sense. strategy of, of building up the sugars in their body to avoid just totally freezing and destroying their organs. But Cell it's... Cell explosion. Yeah. It's crazy. And I mean, I remember seeing this, we had a a little pond, uh, in the backyard of our house growing up for part of the time. And I remember seeing, I don't know what kind of frog it was, but I remember seeing a frog frozen in the pond and thinking, Oh, you know, that 10 years old or whatever, like thinking, Oh man, that's terrible. That frog is has frozen to death. And then after the pond got out going out there and why, I mean, there's no dead frog floating in there what happened to the frog and now I think it maybe it was just fine you know so um it's it's pretty fascinating some of the adaptations that these these animals have I also do have to mention and not every frog is going to do this sometimes frogs Casey you mentioned they're just going to hang out um, in the water they're going to hang out below the ice uh, in, in the water they are still going to continue to get oxygen through their skin So cutaneous respiration, um, blood vessels in their skin, oxygen diffusion, just like oxygen diffuses in our lungs. Um, And then I also have to mention cloacal respiration that some turtles will do. You may also hear this called butt breathing. And yes, uh, it's a similar thing of the oxygen exchange through blood vessels and their cloaca. Um, I also have to mention this because you will hear it if you've seen the movie Frozen 2. It is one of many things that Olaf says at one point in the movie. Some of the things he says are not true at all, but this is where he says turtles can breathe through their butts. Mm -hmm. Adaptations, man, uh, to help them survive if they're having to stay in those cold waters. Yeah, it's crazy. And then in the springtime, sometimes you'll see like snapping turtles who have burrowed into the side of the bank come out of the water and they literally have like 12 inches of dirt and grass on top of it because they have just spent so long, basically part of the earth, which is, it's so fascinating. And I'm sure we'll cover more things when it comes to spring about how these animals emerge out, but man, keep an eye out for those animals. If you're in an area that experiences winter, some of those changes you're going to see. 
And then I'll mention the the term diapause here as well. Throw that in with our hibernation torpor brumation. Diapause is something that you'll hear with insects a lot, and it's just sort of pausing where they're at. So I mentioned a lot of times adult insect species will die in the winter, but they will overwinter. Sometimes they'll overwinter as adults, but a lot of times they'll overwinter in the egg or larval stage as well. We've talked it on this podcast before about the importance of leaving our leaves on the ground. This is one of the reasons why that provides a nice shelter for these insect species, not just insects, but for the, the uh, these species to help them maintain a more consistent temperature. So avoiding some of those extreme temperature fluctuations. So this allows them to kind of stay, um, stay through the winter. It only takes really a cover of leaf litter and sometimes an inch of dirt to make the difference. Oop, Rue is my cat and one of our mascots. He, he likes to occasionally purr into the mic. Um, he needs love right now. But uh, it sometimes it's just that leaf litter that makes the difference between a insect or a turtle surviving the winter time because that's the natural covering that provides that buffer layer from the snow and the ground freezing. So yeah, important ways that you can help them out. For sure. So yeah, so let's transition then into our last kind of section um, because yeah that's the the leaf litter is, is one of the ways that we can provide a shelter and that is the other thing the other kind of strategy that animals have is just to kind of carry on as normal do what you do winter time is tough we're going to be a little more adaptable am I just going to change my diet I'm going to maybe instead of doing the leafy plants yeah I'm going to have to chew on some bark for a while it's fine twigs we'll get through it uh, and they're just going to keep going on as normal so animals like deer maybe so white-tailed deer mice species of rabbits. We've mentioned raccoons uh, a little bit as well, opossums, um, sometimes some different bird species as well. They're just going to kind of carry on. They do still need some help. Shelter is one of those things that they're going to need. So they're going to find, you know, deer are going to find uh, thickets, brush, uh, areas of brush that they can hide in. Rabbits are going to have burrows. Mice are going to be underground for the most part. Uh, raccoons are going to look for places in trees where they can shelter. Opossums, same thing. So they're going to find some sort of shelter. They're going to have to have, like I said, a little bit of a flexible diet. Uh, and then just like we are going to put on our winter wear, these animals are going to put on a little bit of their own winter gear as well. So sometimes this might include growing out a thicker winter coat. And if you see birds in the winter time a lot, you're going to see them maybe looking a little, uh, a little fluffier than normal. And this is not necessarily because they've put on weight. Uh, this is because they're going to sit with their feathers fluffed out. And this was always one of the biggest things for me living in a cold weather environment is how do these little tiny birds, these ones that don't migrate, how do they stick it out? Uh, and it really is just that they've got a lot of good insulation, right? So we don't think about it as such, but trapping air is actually a really good insulator. So they're going to fluff out those feathers and they're going to trap air in between those feathers. They've got different, we see those smooth feathers on the outside. They've got those little downy feathers underneath. Um, so they're going to just fluff those out and trap that air and try to keep themselves nice and warm. It's literally the same concept of, as like a down coat yep. where you have the feathers on the inside, just having the air in there, trapping that heat that we're producing is a, you know, if you've worn a down coat, you know, yeah. it's a really effective <laughs> way to keep yeah. warm. So yeah. yep. Birds have been doing that since time began. There were birds. Since birds yep. began. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Wearing a down coat or just putting on lots of layers as well. The other thing that you might think about is their feet. Their feet don't have those layers of feathers, right? So how do they do that? They have a cool adaptation. And again, this isn't just for birds, but we'll, we'll talk about it in, in this respect. They have this, it's called countercurrent heat exchange, where basically their veins in their arteries, so the blood vessels that are going away and towards the heart are 
right next to each other. So the warm blood that is uh, leaving the body and going out to the extremities is flowing right alongside the cold blood that's going back. And so some of that warmth is just getting transferred over to that cold blood. This is doing two things. This is keeping their core warm. So it's returning that heat to the main part of their body, but it's bringing enough heat to their extremities to keep their feet from freezing, basically. So yeah, their feet are cold, basically, but they're going to use that system to keep their feet warm enough and to bring some of that heat back to their body as well. So that's really interesting. Um, if you see them sitting on the ground as well, too, you might see them with their feet kind of tucked up inside their bodies, keeping them warm. So. I thought that was interesting too. You, you look at a bird and wonder like, how are they keeping their feet warm? Aren't their feet cold? Yeah, yes, their feet are cold. <laughs> but, but that's how they protect themselves from things like frostbite, which sort of brings me to my last point is that these animals are not immune to winter. Just because they have these adaptations, they have these strategies, they have these shelters that they're gonna use. It's still cold out there. For them. So yeah, it does happen. I read a lot about opossums in particular as maybe not being the most hardy. They maybe don't have as much uh, of that winter coat as some other species. So you will see them getting frostbite on their extremities and that sometimes um, that's how naturalists, wildlife rehabbers, whatever can kind of age them is by checking to see whether or not so they, they have frostbite. Winter, have yeah. They, yeah. Have they lived through the winter yet? So that was just kind of a good reminder for me that, yeah, even though they can do it and it's pretty awesome, some of these adaptations that they have, it is a struggle for them. So keep an eye on the wildlife around you. If you've got a, a favorite backyard species that we didn't talk about, you know, look it up, see what they do, see what their adaptations are, see where they're going, see where they're hanging out for the winter. And we'll talk about what we can do to help them out before we go. Casey, anything else you want to add about wildlife in winter before we go? Winter's tough, I think, for most people. Like, I, and there are plenty of people who are excited about snowfall and things like that. But I think for a lot of us who lean towards wanting to be outdoors or being able to kind of engage in nature, winter can be sort of an impediment to us. And I think that that's actually sort of I don't want to say it's comforting, but it is like, it is a normal <laughs> animal thing to have a tough time in the winter time. And there are other animals out there and there are things that we can do in our own little pocket of the world to help make sure that they have a better experience getting through winter. Um, so I'm excited to learn a little bit more about that uh, when we come back for the break. Everybody, we're going to go into a couple of challenges for the week that are not super challenging this week. So hopefully this will be something that everybody can, can get into this week. So the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is what we just wrapped up with. What is your favorite animal that you get to see around where you live at home. And really, regardless of where you live, even if it doesn't get super cold in the wintertime where you're at, what does that species do in the wintertime? What adaptations do they have? Do they stay? Do they go? Uh, can you see them year-round? So just take a minute to think about, hey, what's a whether that's a, a specific species of bird or an insect or whatever the case may be, or just something that you've always been curious about, take a look, see what strategy that animal uses to survive in the winter. And then the second thing I'll ask you to do Again, especially if you live in a cold weather climate, don't forget about your winter wildlife this year. How can you create a habitat? How can you create some space for winter wildlife near you? Maybe this is as simple as leaving your leaves. You don't have to leave them all over your grass if you want. You can rake them up in piles around your trees or something like that. Um, maybe you can responsibly put out some bird feeders. Maybe it is planting native bushes or something like that to create th that shelter for some of those smaller animals as well. But think about it and think about how you might be able to create some, some winter space for wildlife around you. 
Yeah, they're they're everywhere. Even when they don't seem like they're yeah. around us, they're everywhere. So I think I'm going to have to break out the bird feeder. I'm excited, <laughs> but I'm also really excited to look into, I'm, I've been really interested in white-tailed deer recently mm-hmm. because we have a herd in our backyard and I am excited. They normally bed down under a bamboo grove and near some of the spruce trees in our backyard. Um, so I'm excited to kind of watch their behavior as it starts to get a little more snowfall and it's a little easier to see them as the foliage goes away. Yeah, that'll be cool. Yeah. Do some winter wildlife watching as well. So we know now that, you know, some of these species are staying, staying right where you're at in the cold weather. So keep an eye out, even if you can't see the species in particular, see what signs you can see that the wildlife is still there. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed that and gave you something new to think about. I'm still kind of marveling over the wonder that is hibernation. We marveled over migration. I think hibernation is actually pretty amazing uh, in and of itself. It's more than more than just falling asleep. So uh, hopefully you all enjoyed that as well. If you did, if you didn't, if you have questions for us, if you have suggestions, this episode was actually a suggestion from a listener. So if you have suggestions for other future episodes or whatever else you want to talk to us about, you have a few ways that you can get a hold of us. We are on Facebook. You can find us. We're just a little greener podcast. You can find us on Instagram as well. We're at a little greener pod. And we have an email address as well, a little greener. Oh, darn it. It's been too long. Is it a little greener <laughs> podcast? Yes. <laughs> at gmail.com. <laughs> at gmail.com. Boy, uh, on that note, any one of those, we, we would love to hear from you. So don't hesitate to reach out. Casey, as always, it's a pleasure doing this with you. It's been great, Sarah. Yeah, and thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. We'll see you next week. <laughs>